Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 130 of Radio 815, the podcast dedicated to examining the works of writer-director-producer J.J. Abrams and his extended Bad Robot universe. I'm Matt Crandall, here with my co-host Marcelo Inostroza, as we get into the very final few episodes of the fifth season of Fringe. Now, before we do that, I just wanted to note off the top, we record these episodes a little bit in advance. So by the time you are hearing this, it will be two weeks since the passing of Lance Reddick, but I wanted to give him a shout out. Agent Broyles, Philip Broyles, one of our favorites from Fringe, unfortunately gone way too soon. Bad Robot fans will know he was also Matthew Abaddon on Lost. Anybody who watches HBO will know he was on The Wire for the entire run. An incredible actor, a great guy by all accounts, and we here are very saddened to learn that he had passed away. And even though he's not in the episodes we're going to talk about today, I just wanted to give Lance a shout out because he was one of my favorites and it is a tragedy that he has gone too soon and unfortunately no longer with us. But that being said, the people who are still with us, we are talking about season five, episode 10, Anomaly XB 6783746, say that 10 times fast, written by David Fury, directed by Jeffrey Hunt, aired December 21st, 2012. Marcelo, this fucking kid is causing a lot of headaches. What are you thinking as Team Fringe has to protect this child observer, Michael, at all costs? And by the end of the episode, one of our characters that we know and have come to care for pays the ultimate price to make sure that this kid is safe. Okay, here's the thing. All throughout this episode, I was thinking... When they cast this kid, what 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 must have been the casting parameters? Because this kid is the luckiest kid in Hollywood because he gets to show up on set, not say a fucking word, and get paid for it. Now, that's not his fault. I don't blame him. I blame the writers of Fringe for designing for, for designing this character like this and making this character such an integral part of the final season of Fringe. The other thing that pissed me off about this episode is that our fringe characters continue continue to walk around in broad daylight. I cannot understand for the life of me why the writers of this episode, uh, or the writer of this episode who you just mentioned, David Fury, didn't have our fringe team meet Nina in a warehouse. Why were they walking on the goddamn street? And he, listen... And even, sorry, and even when they were walking to a secret a secret facility that Nina had stored away to where the resistance can do tests on observers, right? They were, they were walking to the to, to the to the location of the secret warehouse, and right behind them was two groups of observers going in the other direction. I I I really, really appreciated the forward motion of these two episodes, but some of the some of the uh, the way that the story was fed out and the way that the story was given to us really pissed me off. Yeah, there was lots of stuff I really did like in this episode. But again, there were those elements that I'm getting frustrated with as this story ramps up to its conclusion. And those being, we've got the kid. And because he is nonverbal, they're trying to find a way to figure out why he's important. Why this kid needs to be part of their plan and they don't know so we're like all right we've got michael he's a mini me observer why do we care why was this part of donald donald hid this kid we still don't know who donald is and obviously walter can't remember september's plan 
So we're like, all right, this kid is the keystone of this whole thing, but we can't really communicate very well with him. So as they're trying to figure this out, they realize, oh, there's a, another device that maybe we can get that will help us. And it's like, for real, another treasure hunt. How many things are we going to amass that we got to go on another thing? And as you said, they are not very good at being stealth and covert. They're just walking around like it's another Tuesday. And so that gets really frustrating. But the, the good stuff that works in this episode is, you know, I like that they team up with Nina and she's got the secret lab. I like that. As the episode goes on, we get more instances of Walter starting to maybe have those tendencies that we don't want to resurface. So there are a few flashes of that Walter that he's worried about. And even Peter says, like, you want me to keep you in check? And he's like, yeah, but not now because we got to focus on this stuff. So don't worry about it. And we start to get worried a little bit about that as Winmark, you know, ramps up his search for this kid. But the most interesting part of this is where Michael is able to bring memories back to Walter. And we do see that this kid has some ability here and he touches his face and he is able to give him a lot of these keys that they are missing, which by the end of this, we figure out kind of what the plan is. But more importantly, we find out who Donald is and what that means and why that's important. But also in doing this, it brings back Walter's memories from the other timeline, which I'm excited and infuriated by at the same time. We're starting to think like maybe if we can use this observer plan, we can undo everything that has happened. And so they are trying to figure that out. And that's going to play in bigger in the next episode. But all along, my hope is that when we snap our fingers and undo everything, we rewind this shit all the way back to when Peter got into the machine and erased himself. That's the moment that I think we need to go back to where everyone still has the things that we remember from the first three seasons and we rewind it all to that point, the season three finale. And this lets me know that with Walter getting his memories back where now he has all of those past memories fringe, this is them thinking that they have rewound it back by bringing all that stuff forward and I realized the only thing that they're interested in rewinding is this observer plot and everything else that happened after with the people not remembering Peter and then slowly remembering is kind of going to stick. What are you thinking as Walter gets part of his memories back here because Michael actually does do something with the with his powers? I really, really like that scene of the fringe team using a device that is provided to them by Nina that will allow them to finally talk to this kid. Because like I said in my opening rant, I, am I, I was really upset about the way that the writers structured this character and that they didn't make him a verbal character, that they made him nonverbal. And I really like this device that they created so they could finally, finally talk to him. But my favorite part of, well, well, well there's two fair parts that I had about this episode. My favorite, uh, my first favorite part about this episode was when the child went up to Walter and basically gave him a Vulcan mind meld. And through that Vulcan mind meld, he gave Walter all the memories that he was missing. But more importantly, he gave him all the pieces 
that they needed to, to finally do some forward motion, some forward momentum. I've been talking about that for goddamn fucking weeks. So I'm glad that at the 11th hour, finally, they had the fucking pieces, and now we get to go. I really, really like your thinking in that your hope was that they was by 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 doing what the fringe team is going to do by by rewinding the clock essentially going back to the season three premiere is an inspired choice but like you i don't think the fringe writers at this point in the show's history were concerned with that i i sort of think that uh uh like you do that they're strong that they're going to take parts of their convoluted story about Peter being erased from the timeline and they're going to sweep that under the rug for the greater finish uh, that they have for us, whatever that may be. Yeah, I think you're right that that's, that's just my personal want, that my ideal finale would be that we we execute our plan and there we are in that moment where Peter disappeared after using the machine and instead of disappearing, he's there. He has bridged the two universes, everything is stable, Everybody celebrates together. The two universes are harmonized and everybody kisses and rides off into the sunset. That's that's my ending that I wish had happened. But we got to go through a little bit of misery before we get to to that stuff, which is Winmark in this episode really ramping up their intensity. And as they are searching for the child, they get tipped off and they figure out where this black site is. And Nina hides Michael in a clever way, and then they show up to interrogate her. And she says to them, you know, you guys have these involuntary habits that people have evolved past. You're like lizard-like when you cock your head. So you guys think you are highly evolved and better than us, but you have some traits that we actually moved beyond. And Winmark's like, no, you guys are the animals. You know, look at this, the way that you experimented on our people and she's saying well yeah you guys are way worse and so i like that they are going to try and extract the information that they need from nina and she uses the techniques that edda taught her to try and stave off the the reading but she knows that that's only like a band-aid and that it's not going to take and so in those fine moment final moments um for nina sharp in this timeline and blair brown on the show she says basically like hey asshole I'm not going to give you the information. You can't get it from me. And he's like, oh, I'll get it from you. And she's like, not if I'm dead, bitch. And then she kills herself, which obviously I hate to make light of such a tragic moment. But it it does land pretty good because we do care about Nina, even though she has been super evil throughout the run of Fringe and her allegiance have changed multiple times that we never know if we can really trust Nina Sharp or not. But here she does make the ultimate sacrifice to try and give our team more time. Marcelo, how is that landing for you when Nina kills herself so that they can't extract the information from her? I really, really loved Nina's last stand at the OK Corral because, like you said, she knew that she could only save Winmark off for a while, and she knew that that she had no way out. So I really like her sort of uh, Marcus mentality from John Wick. There's a scene in John Wick where where, where Marcus is talking to this, the, the bad guy of John Wick 1. And he says to him, I may go out, but I'm going to go out my own way. So for some reason, when Nina had that last, uh, um, when, when Nina had that last exchange with Winmark and said, you know, um, 
you know, when 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 Nina pointed the gun at Winmark and she said, and Winmark said, uh, uh, that bullet can't hurt me. And Nina says, I know. And that's when she uh, executes herself. I really, really love that moment because that to me is a baller moment. That to me says, again, Nina, despite her fact that uh, for for a long run, for, for a long portion of the series, she was very wishy-washy. I was very uh, uh, unhappy with the way that she seemed to play both sides in the middle. I was I was really happy that in these final seasons, her character finally uh, finally got to stand still, and I really liked um, what they did with her character in reference to making her more important to Olivia. I really really like that stand, and I also, if I just could mention for one moment, I love that we get to see the viciousness of Winmark when he interrogates that scientist that is loyal to Nina. And we see that poor guy. I mean, his brain must have got gotten got, gotten made into spaghetti or jello. But that scene was so impactful. And I'm like, God damn it, Winmark, you bald son of a bitch. I I just I just I yeah, I, I, I thought I thought the actor who played Winmark in this specific episode really got under my skin. And I wish I knew the guy's name. He did uh, 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 he does such a good job at being an absolute tool. He he is very good at being an absolute tool, as you say. And he's he's menacing and imposing. And, you know, we are waiting for the great moment where Winmark is going to get his and that's going to be like a, a clap and cheer moment. The, the final scene of this episode is the thing where finally it's like, OK, we are moving on. We're finally realizing we've only got three hours of story left. Let's fucking accelerate this shit. And that is, as we mentioned earlier, where Michael gives Walter the memories. But we see Walter in this moment remembering who Donald is. And what we see is a very human-like, with hair, version of September. So Donald is actually September, but September is not in observer mode. He is in a much more human mode. And we see him and Walter have a quick exchange before pushing the remainder of that scene to the next episode. So what are you thinking as Walter, you know, kind of stands up and he's like, I know who Donald is. Donald is September. Are you happy and excited? I really, really loved that reveal uh, back in the day when I saw it, because um, back in the day when I saw Fringe and this and this Donald character got introduced I was both frustrated and sort of blinded to the to the holes that the final season of Fringe had within it from a story's perspective. But today, uh, uh, but in, in in subsequent rewatches and um, and for this rewatch that we did for Radio Eight One Five, I'm noticing that um, what, I'm like, okay, Donald, you know, um, you know, uh, Donald ended up to be September and. For some reason, September made this kid critical to the plan. So although back in the day I loved it, and today watching this episode, I love that reveal when Walter, you know, tilts his head up and he says, "A Donald is September." I'm like, "Duh! I could have told you that, like, like four, like, like, like four or five weeks ago." Because I think I think the reveal of of, of Donald being September was sort of telegraphed even to somebody. Who 
who uh, is watching the series for the first time. Because when you look at the kid, that when you look at this bald, uh, nonverbal kid, you're like, this kid has to be an observer. Like, 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 like anyone who's paying attention, like us, would probably put, would probably put two and two together and could probably maybe put the idea that this Donald guy has to be an observer of, of some esteem, right? Uh, were you thinking that back in the day or am I way off here? I don't know if I was thinking exactly that, but I definitely was wondering where is September in all of this because he's mysteriously absent. And then as they keep looking for this person who helped Walter plot out the, the plan and has all these information things, we're like, well, we know September helped him come up with this plan. So who's this Donald fuck and why is he involved? So then you start to think, oh, is this just like a, a code name that somehow... I I almost wonder if Walter was just confused, but then we find out that it is for some reason when he became human instead of being an observer, he decided to go by a different name, which I get if you go through a transformation like that, you would maybe want a new name and that is fine. But it also just feels like we wanted a mystery. We wanted to have a surprise reveal. And this was the easiest way by doing this misdirection that like i said everything that we know about donald is covert and off the books anyway so the only people who would be able to put two and two together should already know who donald is so i don't know why we were using a fake name but that's something i could try and get over as we quickly jump to episode 11 the boy must live which dovetails exactly with this written by graham roland directed by paul holahan January 11th, 2013 is when this episode aired. And it picks up with that final scene of Walter remembering that September is Donald. And we see more of his vision. And he said it at the end of the last episode, and it's the name of this episode. We see where Donald, September, is saying to Walter, the boy must live, which is something that September has said to Walter multiple times previous in earlier seasons of Fringe. And we always assumed it was Peter Bishop. And now they are taking that phrase and rephrasing it and saying, he never meant Peter Bishop. He actually meant this kid, Michael. And well, I try to be reasonable and I'm like, all right, this is a retcon that does work. If you are trying to pretend that you had this plan the entire time, you can say, we always meant that. And the observers are very cryptic. And half the time they, they say things in riddles. And not quite literally, but I'm like, for real, <laughs> we didn't have to do this. You could have just told me the boy was important and I would have believed it. But making Peter less important to the plan by saying that that phrase was never about Peter kind of pissed me off extremely when I reflect on all the interactions that Peter Walter and September have had previous. Marcelo, how did that sit with you? This retcon is absolute bullshit. And you know why this is absolute bullshit? Because, listen, I love that first scene in the pilot of Fringe when Peter sees Walter for the first time in 20 years in St. Clair's. And what is the first thing that Walter does to Peter when he sees him, right? He goes, uh, I thought you'd be fatter. And then he goes up to him and he, check and he checks his eyes, which indicates... And the reason why Walter checks his eyes is because he knows... Because subconsciously in the back of his head, Walter knows that Peter's not from this universe. So that, 
I don't understand why in the final season they felt the need to to take the main crux of the entire series and make him less important to insert this boy who is nonverbal, who we don't care about, who we met in a random episode uh, uh, seasons ago that when they wrote this episode, I, I have no doubt that when they wrote this episode, they had no idea that they were going to take this thing from this episode and make it the lynch point of the, of the final endgame from Fringe. So I'm tremendously frustrated like you in that regard that they sort of pushed Peter aside for this kid and for the greater plan of trying to beat the observers. Yeah, I just think we can put a lot of the stakes of this current season on Michael, but by using that line and saying, oh, we always meant Michael, diminishes diminishes the importance of Peter Bishop in those earlier scenes in, in previous seasons in a way that they didn't need to do it. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't make me think, ooh, they knew this all along. It actually makes me think, which asshole pitched this in the room thinking they were the most clever guy on the writing staff, right? Like, you you weren't. You can do retcons, but don't do a retcon at the cost of the importance of one of your three leads of the show. That's That's frustrating to me. But I did like that when this episode airs at the beginning, having that great scene with Walter and September, who we find out the reason he took the name Donald Babylon Hive Rise Up is because he really liked the movie Singing in the Rain. And Donald O'Connor, you know, was good good morning, good morning, dancing around. And this guy was like, oh, I like that. I'll use that name from here on out. Which I can't fault the guy for loving that movie. Great movie, but come on. So I, I think that that scene is really good. And we find out as we go on that the importance of Michael is twofold. So one, he is september's son for all intents and purposes so of course september is going to care about michael he is his offspring and we also find out that the way that observers are created they are like made in a lab and they do all this stuff to make sure that they are perfect and they use the dna from other people but michael has an anomaly and this is what makes him special because normally if there's an anomaly the observers would just terminate and they would get rid of it. And the anomaly is that Michael has all of the intelligent evolution stuff that the observers are known for, but he also has the emotion that humans are known for. And September believes that this is the thing that is actually the key to the observers becoming better and realizing their mistakes. And that if we can show them that this anomaly is not a bad thing, but actually this is the way, then we can get them to realize that coming back and enslaving the humans and doing all this stuff was the wrong move. Because the observers, as smart as they were, were always missing this key thing that would keep that in check to make sure that they didn't swing too far into tyranny. And that thing is human emotion. So Marcella, what are you thinking as the importance of Michael is revealed, and we do see Winmark in the future digging into the stuff, trying to figure out what makes this kid so important and how they can stop him, and everybody realizing it's September's son, and the realize the reason he's important is because he can feel. I really, really, I really, really like this episode because, like you just laid out for us, 
this episode really gives you all of the backstory on the observers um uh you know you know that we never got in previous seasons and i really love the i really love the crux that they gave michael of the reason the reason why he's so important is because he can feel and because he can uh 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 uh, uh through through some through some mystical powers he's going to be able to show uh mankind that going down the path of absolute knowledge isn't the way to go how he's going to do that or 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 or, or how he's going to end up in a situation where he can do that i don't know but i really loved learning the entire backstories of the observers in the 11th hour also i loved when winmark took a portal back to uh 2609 i believe it was and we found out that that bald-headed bastard winmark has a boss i i loved the fact that winmark was at winmark was under somebody and i also love that during the conversations with that specific individual winmark's uh uh behavioral patterns are changing and his boss says that you don't look right are you are you okay and when mark says you know he he basically spells out that i feel dread i want to end the life of walter bishop and the fringe team so i really like that when mark is starting to feel emotions because of everything that he's going through with trying to capture the fringe team yeah, I thought that was great. And I I do love when he goes to the future. And yeah, we see that he works for like this commander and they're, that he is not the number one guy. He's like the number one guy on the ground. He has a boss. So I like that. I thought that was great. And having this whole episode, we still, by the end, when they meet up with September in the middle. So I just want to shout out, because I've been negative on a lot of stuff, there is a lot of great stuff that I do like. So I really liked when, in order to locate where donald is walter needs to get more of this memory to try and pinpoint a location and they put him in the tank so we bring the tank back for a final time because we can't have a final season of fringe without somebody getting in the tank and there's a great moment where olivia opens the door and goes oh dude uh you you took your swim trunks off and he's like yeah i needed to be free and so walter is free bit free balling it in the tank and i thought that was really funny and that was a nice moment of levity and bringing and bringing the tank back was just great because it was great to see that and to throw Walter in there and to have him be naked is such a great Walter Bishop moment before the stakes get really high. Then the other thing I really do appreciate is that as that's going on, you know, we we uncover this stuff when we finally meet up with Donald and he digs deep into what went wrong and why things are going. And I do like the plan. Now, part of Part of this does involve, he explains why we needed all of the items that we've collected so far. And he says, oh, it's for us to build this machine that then does this. And by the end, there is still more stuff they need to gather. So we still are on the treasure hunt. But I like that. But the the key scene in all of that is where Walter and September are in like a storage facility. And September says, hey, do you remember that white tulip? And they have a talk about this is the envelope and the white tulip and the significance, bringing that all back. So reinstating in Walter that that final redemption that he needs, that white tulip that says he is redeemed and forgiven is still on the table and it's still important. And by the end of this episode, it is revealed that Walter knows that in order for this plan to succeed, 
he is pretty sure he has to die. That it is going to be a sacrifice that he has to make. And now, this is totally in fitting with Fringe because we had the season three finale where Peter had to put his life on the line to save the world. The season four finale where Olivia Dunham took a bullet to the head to save the world. And now we're building towards a season five finale where Walter Bishop may have to sacrifice himself to save the world. So I did appreciate the symmetry of that, even if it's a little bit like, okay, this is Walter's turn to sacrifice himself. But the way that they worked it around to the white tulip thing, I thought was really well done. And that is bringing back something from the past in a way I liked, whereas bringing back the boy must live from the past in a way that I hated. What did you think of that whole white tulip conversation between Donald and uh, Walter? I loved that white tulip conversation because finding out that Walter has to make a large sacrifice so the plan will be successful at the time back in the day when he when 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 uh Walt, when Walter says oh I know what I have to do now I have to make a sacrifice at the time back in the day I'm thinking oh shit Walter has to die so Going into the final hours of Fringe, thinking that Walter is going to pay the ultimate price, is going to pay the ultimate price, really made me feel that um, despite how discombobulated this uh, final season of Fringe has been, I really like the symmetry in that Walter at the beginning of the series, he's the one that started off this whole thing. And I really love the symmetry in that he has to make one more sacrifice to fix all this shit. And I love that it has to be him. And also I love the final confrontations that that might present as we go into the final hours of Ringe here. And I've always loved the sort of, the sort of flower or the, the, I've always loved the sort of paper flower that uh, um, September gives to Walter to remind him of hope and to remind him that there's still hope out there in the universe, no matter what uh, uh, end game he might be facing. Yeah, that's a very important message to carry and definitely a, a through line of Fringe as a series in, in its entirety. The fact that hope, you know, <laughs> all it takes is a spark of hope to to change things. So I like that a lot. The final scene when they explain that the importance of Michael is that he has emotions, then why did they get a kid to just be a blank stare for every time we've ever seen him? So I just wonder why we don't see him emoting a bit through his eyes or something. Like it's literally, they cast a kid, they put him in that terrible bald cap, and then they're just like blank expression every time we see him. And so I'm frustrated that even though he has this capacity for emotion, we don't see it. And then he does what in the moment seems like the dumbest thing ever, which is when they are trying to escape from Windmark and the observers on a train, all the dude has to do is just go with the flow. The doors are closing. And for some reason, Michael steps off and gets caught. And I'm like, all right, hopefully this is a case of he wanted to get caught and we will have to see why. But in that moment, it feels like, oh, kid, what are you doing? You idiot. What did you think as the final scene of this is Michael stepping off the train? It is the most infuriating thing ever. 
because the French team is running for the train to get away from the observers. And you're right, all that Michael has to do is let the doors close and they'll get away. But for him to step off the train, to allow himself to get captured by, by Windmark and his other cronies really, really infuriated me so much so that I wanted to pull my long hair out of my head when I was watching this episode. So that was just bullshit. But hopefully the Fringe writers in the final hours of Fringe here will pay that off in a satisfying way. I do kind of agree with you in that if they wanted to make Michael's uniqueness, the fact that he was an observer and that he felt emotion, why didn't they layer his character with more expressions in his face? Or why didn't they make him talk? I think it probably comes down to some of the kid actors just weren't good enough to pull off observer dialogue without it sounding horrendous. Do you think that they made that choice because it, because it, it was already made by them the first time they introduced Michael uh, a few seasons ago? Because if you remember the first time that they introduced him, he couldn't talk back then. So do you think that they, do you think that they didn't want to do like a retcon and they just carried over what they had already done before? Yeah, I think you're right. I think they just realized it's easier if we're taking this character that we don't radically change him. And also it's easier for production if we don't give the kid a lot of lines because he can only work four hours a day and we're not going to be standing here as he stutters and fucks up all the speeches and makes everybody pull their hair out because we got to do 89 takes because the 12 year old can't say his shit right. So if we just have him have a blank stare, we got it in one. So we're only relying on the key cast, which I think is definitely. You know, it might not have been a factor in that first episode he was introduced, but it's definitely a factor in keeping that going, knowing that the last thing that they needed as they're doing a rush production of a final season is to place a lot of exposition on a kid. So that was, I think, smart overall, even if it is frustrating to us as viewers. Next week, we are going to be slowing things down. We've only got two episodes left, and next week, because the, the two-part finale has so much to dive into, Next week, we're only going to be talking about episode 12, Liberty. And then the following week, we will do the series finale of Fringe, An Enemy of Fate. So if you are watching along, one episode is the homework for this week. If you guys enjoy the show, please like, follow, subscribe, rate. Any reviews are essential. Tell your friends, share it. Let people know we are anywhere you can find podcasts. We are also on YouTube. You can search Radio 815. You can listen to back episodes on YouTube. So please do that. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet using the hashtag Radio 815 or add us at JJUniverse815. If you want to reach out to me directly or share your Letterboxd account or whatever, I am on Twitter at Matt Crandall. Marcelo, how can the good folks reach out to you? I'm also on Twitter. I'm at CreekFanatic88. That'll do it for this week. Until next time, Radio 815, over and out. Radio 815 is a Balloonhead Productions presentation in association with Killer Newt Productions.